to be great artists. My name is Matt Anderson. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. How does one measure the worth of another? Some would say that what a person accomplishes in their lifetime is the true measure. They should have a list of achievements and honors that distinguish them past all others. Others might say the accumulation of wealth and financial reward are the trademarks uh, of those that we deem to be successful people. And then others would speak of selflessness applauding those who have forsaken fame and wealth to practice charity or generosity and service. All of these have good arguments to be made. But consider this. What if the greatest measure of a person lies in whether they are spoken of glowingly hundreds of years after their death? What if the most acclaimed are those who receive no acclaim during their life, but yet what they have done or created seems to only gain momentum as the decades and even centuries pass by? Well, today I speak of such a man. I'm sure many of you share my sentiment that poetry is a bit of an acquired taste. It hasn't been something I easily digest and embrace. Uh, Indeed, it seems that some so-called experts seem to believe that the less a poem is understood, the better it is. Uh, I am not one of those people. Uh, Poetry takes effort for me. Even though I have written some, it's really not good at all uh, to anyone besides me and the Lord. So that's kind of where it stays. And then in my educational life, I remember reading such poets as Robert Frost or Walt Whitman, uh, Geoffrey Chaucer, and John Keats. Still, most of the time when I read these things, I have to admit, I don't get it. A few years ago, however, through a book I was reading at the time, I came across a poet from centuries ago who not only grabbed my attention, but had a spiritual depth to his poetry that I had never read before. I'm speaking of the old English poet, George Herbert. And on this episode, I want to examine the life and art of George Herbert and see how a man who could have easily been a quick and immediate success chose anonymity, and after his death, worldwide renown. George Herbert was born April 3, 1593, 
in Montgomery, Wales, within the county of Montgomeryshire. His family was wealthy and distinguished. His father, Richard Herbert, was a member of parliament, a justice of the peace. He later served for several years as what was called keeper of the rolls for his county. His mother, Magdalene, whose maiden name was Newport, came from an even wealthier family than her husband. She was a patron of the arts. Uh, She personally befriended the great poet John Donne. Uh, Donne, in fact, would be George's godfather and later would preach Magdalene's funeral. George was the seventh of ten children with all the advantages that came with wealth and title. However, death, like many things, is unavoidable and visits us all at some point. At the age of three, George's father Richard passed away, and now Magdalene had to raise ten children on her own. Well, she immediately relocated her family from Wales to her family home to live with her mother, who was also widowed. Achievement and education were emphasized in the Herbert house. One might say that there was a lot of pressure to accomplish in George's family, and accomplish they did. Uh, George's oldest brother, Edward, who would inherit his late father's estates and was ultimately made a baron, he became a soldier, diplomat, historian, poet, and philosopher whose religious writings led to his reputation as the father of English deism. Herbert's younger brother uh, was Sir Henry Herbert, uh, master of the revels to Kings Charles I and II. When Magdalene's mother died, she once again relocated the family, only this time to Oxford, where her oldest son was attending school. She would enroll George in the Westminster School when he was about 12 years old. Like his siblings, he was a good student. Although at first he only took day classes, eventually he would become a residential scholar there. It seemed the stars were aligned for George to be a successful academic or priest even. Perhaps his love of poetry was increased by his family's friendship with clergyman and poet John Donne, who I mentioned earlier. He was a frequent guest in their home for dinner, as Magdalene was known for her hospitality. In fact, many believe that her hospitality would later serve as an inspiration for one of George's most famous poems, a poem that talked about the welcoming of all people around God's table to feast at his banquet. Love. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, 
Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand, and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. It was a poem that centuries later would influence French philosopher Simone Weil to become a Christian herself. At the age of 16, George's mother Magdalene remarried. Her second husband's name was John Danvers. He was 20 years younger than Magdalene and quite wealthy. Now, this would almost seem to be scandalous at the time, but Magdalene was apparently a woman of great beauty and strength and wit. So really, no one saw anything untoward about it. And since Danvers was only a few years older than George, he actually served more in the role of uncle or older brother than stepfather. He and George would end up having a very close relationship. Well, George's educational achievements continued. He was admitted on a scholarship to Trinity College in Cambridge in 1609. He graduated first with a bachelor's degree uh, and then with a master's in 1616 at the age of 23. Subsequently, Herbert was elected a major fellow of his college and then appointed reader in rhetoric. In 1620, he stressed his fluency in Greek and Latin and attained election to the post of the university's public orator, a position he held until 1627. It was the job of the orator not only to oversee Latin instruction at Cambridge, but also to provide verses in Latin to celebrate special state occasions. The public order position was one of great esteem, and, and really, in a sense, it punched George's ticket to whatever career he wanted to pursue. He would even serve as a member of parliament briefly from his homeland in Montgomery, Wales. And with the favor of King James I behind him, it seemed he might even serve in the king's court. But something happened to George Herbert at this stage of his life. Right about the age of 30, Herbert seemed to have a trial of the soul in a way. His love of God, which we will see was more than just words on a page, seemed to be conflicting with his ambition. His health had taken a turn for the worse and he would spend the last decade of his life dealing with various lung-related illnesses. George seemed to subscribe to a theology that every circumstance in life was ultimately caused by God, good or bad. As was evident in his poetry, perhaps he thought the Lord was offering correction at this stage of his life for what he considered vain pursuits. 
discipline. Throw away thy rod. Throw away thy wrath, oh my God. Take the gentle path. For my heart's desire unto thine is bent. I aspire to a full consent. Not a word or look I affect to own, but by book and thy book alone. Though I fail, I weep. Though I halt in pace, yet I creep to the throne of grace. Then let wrath remove. Love will do the deed. For with love, stony hearts will bleed. Love is swift afoot. Love's a man of war. And can shoot and can hit from far. Who can escape his bow? That which wrought on thee brought thee low, needs must work on me. Throw away thy rod, though man frailties hath. Thou art God. Throw away thy wrath. We don't know the full extent of Herbert's crisis of belief, but it appears to be quite real. He seems to be a man who achieved a great goal in life, only to find himself dissatisfied. Now, we aren't sure why, but George would end up walking away from it all. He made the decision to devote his life to ministry. Now, again, that could be very highly acclaimed, and he could be in the highest of society at this time for doing that. He could have been given any assignment he really wanted uh, in any number of esteemed metropolitan churches. But Herbert decided on a small country church. And what for many would seem like a step down was for him the perfect assignment. For him, there was something about bringing God's word and message to people who were much less educated than he. And it's clear that this decision seemed to increase the depth of his relationship with God. His poetry seems to be a a gut-wrenching account of a man pursuing a deeper walk with Christ. It, It is almost as if you've been led in on a private conversation between George Herbert and the Lord. And you get to be a fly on the wall as he pours out his soul. Not terribly different from David centuries and centuries before as he wrote the Psalms. Repentance. Lord, I confess my sin is great. Great is my sin. Oh, gently treat with thy quick flower, thy momentary bloom whose life, still pressing, is one undressing, a steady aiming at a tomb. Man's age is two hours' work, or three. Each day doth round about us see. Thus are we to delights, but we are all to sorrows old 
if life be told. From what life feeleth, Adam's fall. O oh, let thy height of mercy then, compassionate, short-breathed men, cut me not off from my most foul transgression. I do confess my foolishness. My God, accept of my confession. Sweeten at length this bitter bowl which thou hast poured into my soul. Thy wormwood turned to health, winds to fair weather. For if thou stay, I and this day, as we did rise, we die together. When thou for sin rebukest man, forthwith he waxeth woe and wan. Bitterness fills our bowels, all our hearts pine and decay and drop away and carry with them the other parts. But thou wilt sin and grief destroy, that so the broken bones may joy and tune together in a well-set song, full of his praises, who dead men raises, fractures well cured, make us more strong. Like today, serving as a pastor in a rural setting is very different from being in educated and cultural areas. The ministry there is much more rugged uh, and the people of the community look to you for more than just preaching sermons on a Sunday. You are the wearer of many hats. You are a community leader, an educator, a settler of disputes, a doctor, psychiatrist, lawyer, architect, you name it. One must really be a jack of all trades to serve in such a capacity. His first assignment would be a parish at St. Mary the Virgin Church in Leighton Bronzewold. Now, part of his work there would include renovating what had become a dilapidated church building. So there's no way he could have chosen this line of ministry in order to preserve his weak health. Uh, this was going to be much more strenuous than most assignments. But he ended up raising the money for the renovation. And the church still stands today, by the way. But most of that funding came through family and friends. Now, the building was and is a simple structure, but you can learn a lot from a church by its architecture. And Herbert did something very intentional in the renovation. It included a non-raised platform. This was done intentionally to show that the pastor and the congregation were on the same level. Now, many believe that poetry over the years had really become Herbert's first love and that pastoring in the country, though, though challenging at times, would also allow him the time to write and create when time afforded. And he certainly took full advantage when he had opportunity. The Pearl, based on Matthew chapter 13. I know the ways of learning, both the head and pipes that feed the press and make it run. What reason hath from nature borrowed, or of itself 
like a good housewife spun, in laws and policy, what the stars conspire, what willing nature speaks, what forced by fire, both the old discoveries and the newfound seas, the stock and surplus, cause and history. All these stand open, or I have the keys, yet I love thee. I know the ways of honor, what maintains, the quick returns of courtesy and wit, in vise of favors, whether party gains, when glory swells the heart and moldeth it. To all expressions, both of hand and eye, which on the world a true love knot may tie, and bear the bundle wheresoe'er it goes, how many drams of spirit there must be to sell my life unto my friends or foes. Yet I love thee. I know the ways of pleasure, the sweet strains, the lullings and the relishes of it, the propositions of hot blood and brains, what mirth and music mean, what love and wit. Have done these twenty hundred years and more. I know the projects of unbridled store. My stuff is flesh, not brass. My senses live and grumble oft that they have more in me than he that curbs them, being but one to five. Yet I love thee. I know all these and have them in my hand. Therefore, not sealed, but with open eyes, I fly to thee and fully understand both the mainsail and the commodities. And at what rate and price I have thy love with all the circumstances that may move. Yet through the labyrinths, not my groveling wit, but thy silk twist let down from heaven to me, did both conduct and teach me how by it to climb to thee. It is clear that Herbert had a deep passion for Christ that came through beautifully in his writing, as well as his pastoral ministry. Early on in his ministerial life, however, he made another change, of course. As a teenager, he had told his mother that he would devote his life to chastity, even before he knew he would serve as a pastor. Now, in later writings, he would assert it was meaning chastity superior to matrimony. However, as a young pastor, he discovered how difficult it was to effectively minister without being married. He, he notes that for an unmarried country parson, ministering to women alone without an audience can lead to all kinds of rumor and gossip. By the way, it's still true today. So in these circumstances, he concludes, it is probably better for a pastor to marry as long as, quote, the choice of his wife is made rather by his ear than by his eye. And also that he choose her for, quote, humble and liberal disposition before beauty, riches, or honor. Well, think of that what you will. But Jane Danvers, his stepfather's cousin, and George were married in 1629, 
and they would remain together the last four years of his life. They had no children. Well, as George progressed as a poet, he began to take new chances. Uh, his, His brief work entitled Easter Wings is what is known as a concrete poem, meaning that the poem has a visual picture as well as a lyrical one. So if you're viewing this and and the lines are centered, um, you'll notice that the two stanzas of the poem visually look like hourglasses. The longest lines occur at the beginning and the end of the stanza, and as you get towards the center, the lines get shorter and shorter. But what was written within is equally as appealing. Easter Wings Lord, who created man in wealth and store? Though foolishly, he lost the same, decaying more and more, till he became most poor. With thee, oh, let me rise, as larks harmoniously, and sing this day thy victories. Then shall the fall further the flight in me. My tender age in sorrow did begin, and still with sicknesses and shame thou didst so punish sin that I became most thine. With thee let me combine and feel thy victory. For if I imp my wing on thine, affliction shall advance the flight in me. Though maybe a bit before his time, one could consider George Herbert a Renaissance man, showing a proclivity in many areas of life and culture. Uh, He was also a musician and uh, reportedly on his deathbed requested his lute so that he could play and sing a song that he had once previously written. George Herbert would succumb to his ailments in 1633 only three years into his ministry, most likely of tuberculosis. On his deathbed, Herbert sent what he called a little book of poems to his friend Nicholas Farrar, who is the founder of a religious community nearby. He reportedly said, quote, if he can think it may turn to the advantage of any dejected poor soul, let it be made public. If not, Let him burn it, for I and it are the least of God's mercies. You see, none of Herbert's poems had been published during the course of his life. And had it not been for his friend, Nicholas Farrar, we never would have read a man who came to be known as one of the great English poets of all time. Those poems were accumulated and published together in a book called The Temple, His poetry is very free to read online, and I would invite you to do so. But I want to turn your attention specifically right now to a poem simply called Peace. Sweet peace, where dost thou dwell? I humbly crave, let me once know. I I sought thee in secret cave and asked if peace were there. A hollow wind did seem to answer, no, go seek elsewhere. 
I did, and going did a rainbow note. Surely, thought I, this is the lace of Peace's coat. I will search out the matter. But while I looked, the clouds immediately did break and scatter. Then went I to a garden and did spy a gallant flower. The crown imperial, sure, said I, peace at the root must dwell. But when I digged, I saw a worm devour what showed so well. At length I met a reverend good old man, whom when for peace I did demand, he thus began. There was a prince of old at Salem dwelt who lived with good increase of flock and fold. He sweetly lived, yet sweetness did not save his life from foes. But after death, out of his grave, there sprang twelve stalks of wheat, which many wondering at got some of those to plant and set. It prospered strangely and did soon disperse through all the earth. For they that taste it do rehearse that virtue lies therein, a secret virtue bringing peace and mirth by flight of sin. Take of this grain which in my garden grows and grows for you. Make bread of it and that repose and peace which everywhere with so much earnestness you do pursue is only there. And so I end with the question I asked at the beginning. How does one measure the worth of another? If it is measured by whether they are spoken of glowingly hundreds of years after their death, then George Herbert fits the bill. You see, like the prince in the poem whose grave sprouted 12 stalks of wheat that were replanted and increased, so was the life of George Herbert. All the fame and acclaim from his poetry followed after his death, and we have all benefited from it centuries later. You know, George Herbert reminds me to play the long game. I get so caught up in accumulating now, having all the accoutrements of a successful life while I'm here. Maybe I should instead take the Lord's advice to store up for myself treasure in heaven, where rust does not corrupt, nor thieves break in and steal. Maybe I should strive for the applause of heaven and the smile of Jesus over getting five stars from some dude on Amazon. Maybe I should point to the one who made everything happen in my life and then let him control what happens after my life on earth. For at that point, I will be with Jesus, which is really what matters most. We appreciate you being a part of the Madcast. Please share this with a friend. We would love to expand our Madcast family. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at mattcastworld at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Sound of Fusion. This has been a production of Monumental Ministries. For more information or if you'd like to hear our archives, go to mattministry.com. Hey, thanks for having me over. I had a wonderful time.